Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Tony Kalesa. Tony is the co-founder and partner with Boston-based Petri. It's a seed and pre-seed investor in biotech startups. But that doesn't quite fully describe it. It's also a community for young founders trying to figure out how to get new enterprises off the ground and connected with a network of seasoned entrepreneurs who can provide helpful advice. The Petri community is part of what some call the founder-led biotech movement, as opposed to the more traditional VC-led startup world. Petri is actually a type of VC, but it has some differences in how it relates with founders as Tony describes in this episode. As for its tastes, it gravitates toward companies at or near the intersection of biology and engineering, which can lead to therapeutics, industrial applications, and other things. The advisors in the Petri network include founders and leaders behind companies like Ginkgo Bioworks, Twist Bioscience, Exact Sciences, Incitro, Beyond Meat, and more. So that'll give you some sense of the diversity of concepts at work. Petri is part of a larger fund called Pillar, and it recently raised Pillar Fund 3, which has a combined $190 million across two funds, and about 30% of that is supposed to be earmarked for biotech broadly, and that includes synthetic biology, healthcare applications, and more. Tony got his PhD from MIT. He has a history, as you'll hear, of working in small businesses, and when he and a few classmates in grad school saw a need for more startup community at MIT, they got to work on creating what amounts to a type of, of new organization called the MIT Biotech Group. It's now part of a thriving ecosystem of young entrepreneurs and part of a larger cross-campus effort called Nucleate. I personally got to know Tony a few years ago when he was starting the MIT Biotech Group, and I was puzzled by the challenges of young people breaking into the industry. I wrote a few articles at the time about this odd phenomenon at a time of maximum possibility in biotech. Timmerman Report subscribers can go back and read a couple of those articles, which I'll include in the show summary at TimmermanReport.com. Now, since writing those columns, I've watched with some admiration seeing Tony step up and do something about it in a constructive way. He got together with a co-founder in 2019 to start Petri, and that company is doing what it set out to do. One brief announcement. Petri and Pillar are organizing the Founder-Led Biotech Summit. It's a free virtual event held November 1 to 5 with a pitch competition awards, and a lineup of interesting speakers made up of some young entrepreneurs and some of the older generation that supports their work. You can check it out at founderledbio.com. And before we get started on the conversation with Tony, a word from the sponsor of the long run, AnswerThink. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, 
support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit answerthink.com slash Timmerman and get a copy of the ebook, Top 3 Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's answerthink.com slash Timmerman. And Thermo Fisher Scientific. In the Gibco Art of Cells project, we paired artists from around the world with a research scientist, then tasked them with creating a piece of cell artwork inspired by their scientists' unique perspectives. Meredith, Meredith Woolnuff is an embroidery artist from Newcastle, Australia. Her elegant and intricate artistic style takes inspiration from the organic structures of the natural world. Paired with Dr. Marietta Hartle, a postdoctoral researcher specializing in embryonic development, Meredith's amazing artwork takes inspiration from nature in a completely new way as she endeavors to capture the earliest stages of life in knitted threads. Discover Chapter 1 of the Art of Cells Project at thermofisher.com slash gibcoloveyourselves. Now please join me and Tony Kalesa on the long run. Tony Kalesa, welcome to the long run. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Tony, very excited to have you on the show today. Uh, and as a regular listener, you know, I like to start with a little bit that provides the listener a frame of reference on today's guest. So, simple stuff, like, uh, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey, um, and I lived there my whole life, and my parents still live there. And uh, my wife uh, was my high school girlfriend, and her parents also live in the same town as my parents. So, we still spend a lot of time uh, back in New Jersey. Which uh, part? So I guess if New, if you think of New Jersey as like, a, you know, most of the population density is kind of on a continuum between New York and Philadelphia. I lived about equal distance from New York and Philadelphia, but still where there were like mostly New York sports fans instead of Philadelphia sports fans. Okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, to show my ignorance of New Jersey culture, uh, you know, are you Springsteen fan? <laughs> I guess. I mean, it's hard not to be if you're from New Jersey, right? Like, that's one of our crowning uh, cultural achievements is Bruce Springsteen. Uh, yeah. But I, you know, I, w- I grew up, uh, you know, being a, a New Jersey Devils fan. Uh, my, you know, I grew up in a town where a lot of people's parents worked in New York City. There was a lot of pharmaceutical companies in the town. Like, you know, we weren't too distant from New Brunswick where you had J&J headquartered. But even just even my drive to school in the morning, right, you'd pass by Wyeth or Santa Fe or, you know, a bunch of these big corporate buildings, which I didn't realize at the time were, you know, some of the it was like the pharmaceutical capital of the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, I'm being a little facetious, but I'm trying to get a little bit at like the culture of the community where you grew up. Um, so what kind of schools did you go to? Uh, yeah, I went, I went to public schools my uh, whole life. Uh, it was a pretty large school. There's uh, about 700 kids in my uh, graduating class. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, a, it was a great place to grow up. Like I, I worked in pizzerias for, for five years. There's a lot of, there's a, I'm, I'm part Italian American and there's a large uh, kind of Italian American presence in New Jersey. So uh, uh, my dad's from Jersey City. So it was when, when it became time for when I once I turned once I went into high school, you know, I, I worked for all four years in high school at a pizzeria uh, not not far from my house and continued working there where I was in college. 
um, I, yeah, I think that actually made a big impact on, on, on me as well. Like just, uh, seeing how like it's a small business, right. It wasn't Domino's pizza. It wasn't like a massive corporate machine. It was a small business. And it was like interesting to see how the small business was run. Well, that's classic entrepreneurship, uh, bootstrap. Uh, was there a particular person there that influenced you and how to think like a small business person and owner and entrepreneur? Well, actually, yeah, I mean, there's a series of people. So, you know, there's an entrepreneur who built that business and also grew it into a chain of pizzerias that was, um, I think, maybe 10 or 15 pizzerias across New Jersey at this point. Um, but, you know, one of the transformational events in the history of that business was there was a massive hurricane uh, called Hurricane Floyd in uh, the late 90s. And uh, the whole town was underwater. Uh, so a lot of people were, you know, had no options for cooking their own food or, or, you know, were too busy cleaning up. And that was actually the transformational moment for that business where they brought in so much business from serving the community um, for, you know, trying to serve pizza for uh, like for providing free pizza for, you know, all the kinds of cleanup efforts. And that catalyzed so much business. And that was actually like the big growth event for their business where they captured, I think, a lot of the local pizza market. Um, and so I think there's like, you know, some analogy here, right. Of like some of the crisis that we've lived through in the past 18 months of how businesses like, uh, in, as a silver lining in a crisis, like see these as like kind of a jumpstart event. And, um, and so I learned, you know, I learned a lot from how that business was built. That's a really interesting story, Tony. I want to pause there because, you know, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of that pizzeria owner when a disaster like that hits and you've got all those people coming in to clean up. I, first and foremost, you're thinking about serving your community like there's people that are hungry and need food and this is what i do for a living i'm good at it <laughs> let's like rise to the occasion let's get all the ingredients we can get all our staff in there and and try to help in the way we can it, it wasn't really motivated i can't imagine like it, about you know let's grab market share and, and expand i mean that came later may have been a happy accident uh, of of being rooted in your community and doing what needed to be done Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that was the, the ethos of it, right? It was stepping up and there's, yeah, there's a lot of people without the ability to cook their own food or they were too busy for it. And so just serving the community. Um, and I think like, you know, the, the, I think that was the, the role of, of people that, you know, had, had the ability to, um, you know, that had the ability to, uh, to, to serve, serve the needs that emerged there. Right. Like, and could execute quickly, right. It was a small business, there's, there's no one to say no. Like it's just the, the, the entrepreneur that was running that business just stepped up and did it. Okay. So you, um, you had that experience growing up, uh, coming through high school. Were you like top of your class, a student think, thinking about science at early age or did that come later? I, I think I did pretty well in high school, but I was no, I was by no means like a valedictorian. Um, I was mostly distracted. Uh, yeah, I, I like I, 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 early on. I I spent a lot of time on music actually, um, and I also just I found a lot of enjoyment in like reading. Uh, <laughs> you know, my dad's old college textbooks and things. I like I I would bring them with me to class and and read that instead of, of whatever we're supposed to be doing. So you know, I, yeah, I wasn't the most serious student. I still did pretty well, but I wasn't. Uh, you know, I wasn't. Uh, very high achieving and like I was, I didn't try and be the top of the class or. Okay. So I see for your undergrad, you went off to Rutgers uh, and biological engineering. Um, how did you settle on that as your, your major? 
so actually I was, a um, so I started off in electrical engineering. My dad is an electrical engineer. I come from a, a very heavily, uh, engineering family. A lot, a lot of my, my parents, uh, aunts and uncles, uh, my grandfather, like, were a lot of, uh, were all engineers. And so it kind of grew up, um, not, you know, not, not being a push on me, but I was just kind of surrounded and became interested in that. My dad and my grandfather are both electrical engineers. So I started off thinking that was what I would do. And, uh, once I got to college, I kind of realized that a lot of the textbooks, like a lot of the classes, they were like the same classes. Like my dad would be like, Oh, I can't wait till you learn X, Y, or Z. And, uh, you know, I, I was kind of like, it felt boring. Cause I was like, I've already been exposed to a lot of this. And, um, so I wanted to go like, you know, where, where, like, where are the textbooks like not written yet? And, um, you know, I, I thought a lot about like my grandfather's life. So my grandfather's 93 and, um, you know, like everyone in my family made a big impact on me, but, uh, him especially. So he's 93, he's still kicking. Um, and he was a physicist, uh, and became an electrical engineer as like the field of electrical engineering, like developed around him. Right. And, uh, they kind of, if I ask him, like he was born in 1928, just like the arc of civilization that he's lived through and how much progress there's been. Um, I thought about like, you know, where am I going to find that kind of trajectory? Right. It seems like we've kind of asymptoted. I did not of course see like, you know, all the development that was to come around computer science and electrical engineering, but it just seemed kind of static. And so, um, I thought like, where, you know, where is that field where like, if my grandfather, the physicist that became an electrical engineer, because like that field was developing around him, like, where's that field kind of developing for me? And, um, and it just, it like, it, it seemed like, you know, biology. And, and I'll joke, I often joke, like, you know, the place, the way I discovered that was like, that was the, where the newest building on the campus was like, you know, you're kind of stuck in like the buildings are made built in like the fifties or something like that. And then you look across at this like gleaming glass and uh, chrome building. I was like, well, okay, the university, like this is a new building. This is what the university seems to think is important. So let me go check it out. And, um, I ended up majoring in, in bi- switching my major to biomedical engineering. And, um, and I, by the time I left, I was, I was actually working in three different labs. So I, I became just obsessed with like doing primary research. Uh, you know, I, I, I never really liked going to class, I, but we were in a building where the classes were on the first floor and the labs were on the second and third floors. And I just, I just made the labs like my home base. I would like, you know, come down for class, but just go right up back up to the lab and, and work in the lab. This was as an undergraduate. So you're just like raising your hand, talking to the professor and saying, Hey, how can I help? Oh yeah. I just, I, I just started emailing people like to see how I could find a way into working in the labs just to see what that was like. Cause it was clear that was where the forefront was. Okay. So was there a particular mentor who you bonded with there and kind of helped focus your, uh, your interest? Oh, I, many. Um, <laughs> so actually, you know, my, my primary undergraduate research advisor was, uh, uh, Professor um, Prabhas Moge, who who's been, made made a big impact on me through kind of pushing my research directions, but but actually the person who really illuminated what I discovered I wanted to do was a guy named Eduardo Sontag, uh, who was actually a mathematician, a control theorist, um, who created a major at at Rutgers called biomathematics. And uh, I loved math. I actually picked up an additional major in math, and and I and I saw the course listings for biomathematics. I was like, what, what, what's that? Um, that sounds like what I want to be doing. And then I kind of realized that the department I was in, like biomedical engineering was a lot of like electrical engineers and mechanical engineers, like working with doctors to create new medical devices or instrumentation. And I found that really interesting, but I realized what I really wanted to be doing was thinking about like the biological system itself as an engineer. So not building tools, you know, but actually like 
engineering the actual underlying biology as kind of a first-class citizen. And so, so I was, you know, wanted to engineer the biology as a first-class citizen. And uh, Eduardo Sontag's classes kind of exposed me to that because it was very much like modeling the biochemistry like a control theorist would model a, a, a plane, right? Like using a lot of the same math. Um, and, um, and Eduardo was a cl- close collaborator with many people in the, in the synthetic biology community in, of, at MIT and the Boston area. And so that's how I actually got exposed to this is what I really want to be doing. So what, what years are we talking about here? So I graduated college in 2012. So this is maybe 2010. But this is still like really far out stuff. I mean, when you talk about modeling, a, you can't. We can't even accurately model a human cell, much less a full organism, right? Or using mathematical tools. And frankly, you know, a lot of people in biology, smart as they are, um, tend to steer clear of math. <laughs> um, this is kind of an unusual combination of disciplines you're trying to bring together and looking out pretty far. Um, but this is, sounds like this is what excited you about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, it's funny, like, uh, if you look at say like Ron Weiss is one of the kind of tall figures of synthetic biology, he's a professor at MIT. And I remember reading his PhD thesis and just like, he lays out the entire field. I mean, like you read, he was basically thinking, well, how do we, you know, a lot of these people came from a background in electrical engineering, which is kind of where I came from, right? Um, and and, um, and just looking, like, uh, how do we how do we remake, like, all the kinds of ways that we have to engineer electri- uh, electrical systems with biology? And he kind of lays out all the frameworks for, okay, here's how you build circuits. Like, here's how you would write code in order to automatically create circuits. Like, here's all the measurement tools that we would need. And, um, and I think it's probably taken... Uh, like I have a good friend, Alec Nielsen, uh, who says that like in basically Alec Nielsen's like PhD thesis was like projected by, uh, and who's the, he's the founder and CEO of, of a company called Asimov, um, one of the really incredible companies in th- synthetic biology now. And Alec said that like when he reads Ron's PhD thesis, it was like it forecasted like his own PhD thesis, right? So I think like we're still on the trajectory. We're kind of know where we're going. And as we're unlocking new layers of technology, um, like just the ability to like read, write, biological systems at every level, whether it's the nucleic acids or the proteins or the cells or the organs or even like ecosystems with gene drives and so on. Like we're, we're just kind of playing out on along the vision and we're discovering new things. This is so cool that that you're, you know, this is where, as you know, coming from MIT, the so many innovations come from um, those the those boundary zones or, you know, they spill over from one discipline to another. You borrow some ideas from electrical engineering and figure out how they can be applied to uh, uh, biology. Uh, it reminds me of the early days of you know molecular biology when a lot of physicists came over uh, to to come work in molecular biology, and they they brought you know some of that beginner's mind and, and first principles thinking. That's that's right. I think they took a lot of the the kind of tools of thought of physics um, in trying to kind of understand how biology works, right? Um, and, and it, it, it does seem like we kind of lost that at, at, a little bit at, at one point, like there's, um, there's this uh, great paper from Rob Phillips at Caltech where he writes about, should the model be the first figure of the paper or the last figure of the paper, right? Should you do all the work and then make a model that fits your data? Or should you start with a model and then test the model? And that's what, that's where like all the experiments, um, come from. But, you know, I think we're ending up, we're ending up in a place that nobody really expected, I think, which is, uh, you know, we, we have, um, like deep learning or a lot of the machine learning techniques have advanced so, so fast where, 
uh, we we're realizing that like we, we can actually engineer the systems without even really understanding how they work. Um, and there's been a lot of success of that. You know, I was, I spent my PhD at the Broad Institute and saw that develop kind of around me. Tony, let's, let's back up and get to that a little bit later. Um, so it sounds like, I mean, by this point, coming toward the end there at Rutgers, you're, you're fully turned on to biotech. You got some connections there with, uh, your, your advisor, Eduardo, who helps connect you to, to go to graduate school at MIT. Uh, that, that's a pretty big step. I mean, were you, uh, how did you feel about that? To be honest, yeah, I remember uh, going to MIT and feeling like uh, I was terrified I was going to be the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way a lot of people feel. <laughs> um, but um, how did you kind of find your sea legs there? I, I kind of made a commitment to myself that I was going to sit in the front of every talk or, at, you know, every class and every talk. And I was going to just ask all the dumb questions. And, uh, and you know, actually that opened up a lot of opportunities for me. Um, it made me, uh, I, I, you know, by the, by the time I left MIT, I feel like I, I knew everybody. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I think I just made a conscious effort to, to put myself out there. And, um, and then I realized I had a lot, you know, I had a lot to contribute, uh, through, through, yeah. I, I mean, it's really just, just, you know, conquering the, the fear and, uh, of, uh, putting myself out there and, and just, uh, trying to get to know lots of people. So did you, uh, how did you balance the traditional coursework with some of that lab work that had much, had excited you so much as an undergrad? Oh, I mean, by the time I got to grad school, I realized I hated taking classes. So, I mean, I probably, uh, spent like the minimum amount of time, uh, you could on classwork and was just really focused on trying to think about what I wanted to work on for my research. Okay. Okay. So what, um, couple of projects stood out for you early on or kind of the middle time of your, your PhD program? Well, uh, when I started my PhD, so I, um, the way I chose a lab was, uh, you know, maybe even it was kind of surprising to myself. Like, I, I guess I, I thought I had kind of very strong opinions about what I wanted to work on, but I guess what I realized was the most important thing to me was actually the experience of building a lab. Um, cause I thought no matter what I do, no matter what I work on, like knowing how to build research organization was going to be the most important thing I could learn from grad school. And so I chose my, my PhD advisor that I asked to work with was the newest faculty member at the time, Paul Blaney. And, um, and I chose to work with him because I like Paul. I thought he's a great guy. He's a smart guy. Uh, I could get along with him, but you know, also like, you know, we're pursuing kind of interesting research directions. Uh, and you know, the lab unfolded in many unexpected directions, but most importantly, I was going to be one of the first graduate students. So when I joined the lab, there was only uh, you know, Paul had just moved to Cambridge and there was, uh, we didn't even have glassware. Like my, I remember my, my, in, in PhD programs, like you often rotate among different labs. And I remember my rotation project was, uh, you know, trying to choose the parts to build a microscope that we needed for our experiments. So, uh, that to me was just like a really exciting place to be. So in a way you're, you're describing the principal investigator as a sort of an entrepreneur. I mean, here's a person who has to start a lab from scratch and that, I mean, that's everything from being the CEO, like finding the grants, uh, recruiting the graduate students, uh, figuring out how you buy, you know, glassware. <laughs> I mean, uh, how, how do you like who are the channels to go through in your department? Uh, what do you need permission for and what can you kind of get away with and ask, you know, forgiveness for later? <laughs> I mean, it really is. I mean, I think there is this kind of false dichotomy to a lot of people. They think, well, you're either in academia or you're in industry. But 
here's a classic example of somebody who's in academia who really needs to behave. If you're going to be successful, you've got to have a lot of those tr uh, same traits as the, the guy who runs the pizzeria. Yeah, I, I think being a professor is definitely a very kind of entrepreneurial experience, at least if you can be successful at it. Um, it's just the currency is different. The incentives are different, right? Like what you're trying, your goals are different. Like you're not trying to, uh, you know, like you, you're going to have different goals. You're trying to publish papers. You're trying to create influence within your field. Um, it's like very different than trying to bring medicines to market or, you know, maximize the equity value of your company, something like that. But, um, but yeah, overall it requires a lot of the same kind of agency and, uh, same kind of skill sets of being able to recruit, uh, great, you know, it's, it should be no, it just, just as like, you know, in, in a company, most of the people in the company are not the founders. The same, same thing is true of a research, someone's research career. Most of their research output comes from their graduate students, not, not their primary research output. And so, you know, like the, the best, uh, professors are often the ones that are the best at recruiting and mentoring students as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and know how to build a successful research organization as opposed to, you know, working in their own kind of ivory tower. Now, did you have a long range plan in these days or like, did you have your eye on becoming an entrepreneur or an investor or, or, or like so many graduate students, you're thinking, you know, I'm just going to get through this, get my PhD. And then if I'm really good, maybe I'll get a faculty job, the classic path. I really didn't know. I didn't think very hard about what I wanted to do. Um, but I think I just, I knew I wanted to run a lot of experiments and, um, and I think I just like took that same kind of approach of like, let me throw myself into this. Like the most value I can get from being in a place like MIT is not going to be my, uh, the classes I take. It's not going to be from the, uh, primary research. I, I, you know, I, I think I, I'm a decent scientist, but I knew I wasn't going to be the best. And so I thought the, the, the real value of being in a place like this is exploring all the kinds of incredible opportunities that get thrown at you and like all the kinds of incredible people that are there. And so I think I spent far more than anyone in their right mind would do of just like trying to get to know everybody there and uh, trying to understand, okay, like what does every lab at MIT do? Like who does it? What kind of, why, why are they doing it? Like, what are all the things that you can do afterwards? Like where are all the alumni? Like, you know, just trying to understand like how does MIT fit into like the overall ecosystem and like, what are all the new directions? And I wasn't necessarily doing this from like the mind of, from the point of view of like, what am I going to do afterwards? But just more of like, I know 20 years from now, like the most important thing is going to be that I did this and not like, you know, uh, not, not the research that I created at, at that time. You know, I, and as you went about this task, you start noticing things, maybe some things that, um, a few of your peers also noticed, but, um, some gaps, some voids in the graduate school experience or education. And I'm thinking now here very particularly about the MIT biotech group. <laughs> um, can you say a little bit about what that was? What what did you and, and your peers notice and, and made you think, hey, we can bring something of value to the community here? Well, you know, I'll say my personal experience was as our, uh, you know, I worked in a technology development lab and um, I started to think about, well, like, what am I, what am I trying to accomplish here? And I realized I had like no real interest in publishing papers, like, you know, and duking it out with referees and like through this year long process of like going from journal to journal, like trying to get it published in the most prestigious journal you could. I was like, I'm just going to throw this up in Biorchive. And I understand it's important for my PI's career. We got to get this published. But like, you know, I really have no interest in like trying to convince anyone that my work is worthwhile. I think it'll speak for itself once it's out there, you know, on Biorchive and I can talk to people about it. And, um, 
the thing I was really trying to maximize was not like citations of my work, but users. Like I was like, citations are a proxy for what you actually care about. What you actually care about are people using your technology. And so I can sit here like duking it out with reviewers, or I can just like go to every la- other lab in the Institute and like present our technology and see if they will use it. Right. And so I started spending my time doing that. And then from there I realized, well, oh, okay, if we're going to scale this effort, like I can only do this, you know, a little bit by myself, but like really we need to start a company, right? We need to like standardize everything. We need to like scale out the distribution. We need to figure out like what we're going to use it for, like what's the highest value applications. And I started realizing, okay, I came to this place, MIT, which trumpets this, uh, this like kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Like I remember them talking about how, uh, if you add up the revenue of all MIT alumni companies, that is like the 10th largest economy in the world or something like that. So I was like, okay, great. So we're going to start a company. And, um, and I realized like, there's a lot of differences between like how you build these biotech companies from how you build tech companies and almost everything that all the momentum at MIT was about how you build these tech companies. And I, you know, I kind of went and asked people why, like, okay, I'm going to start a company. Like, what should I do? And, you know, the answer I got often was like, well, you know, what, like Bob Langer likes created many companies, but he like partners with like people that know how to do it. And like, you know, he partner with these like venture capital firms, like they'll start the company. You can like continue on what you know how to do, which is being an academic. And I had already decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. So, you know, in kind of bouncing around the ecosystem, like talking to people about this, I met, you know, some of some good friends like Nate Stebbins or uh, James Weiss or Vyas Ramanan, Andrew Warren, um, you know, some of this initial group who had their own kind of trajectory in, in discovering this and realizing, hey, there's a real void of a community here. Like we're in the nexus of the biotech universe or how to like people that are creating these amazing companies um, or just like are building careers as investors or just, you know, as, in, 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 in pharma. Like w- why is there no community that connects all of these group of people together with the students on campus? And, um, and that was kind of where we, we created the student community, um, MIT Biotech Group, which has now grown, I think, to be one of the larger student organizations on campus. And, um, and uh, Luke, you were, our, you were our first guest when we, when we launched it, is we were all reading your material at the time. So I remember this well. This was around the 2015 time frame. Uh, you were getting the MIT Biotech Group started. I was just getting Timmerman Report started. And I was there in Cambridge on a business trip. And I was, you know, doing what I do, interviewing venture capitalists and entrepreneurs, kind of like on the other side of Cambridge, right? And then I came over to meet you guys. And you started telling me this story about how there wasn't a campus-wide a group for graduate students and postdocs, or I think even undergrads too. There, you know, it had been kind of like a, a piecemeal ad hoc. You know, if you if your professor knew somebody, he might be able to connect you to an internship or a job that might suit your skills or whatever. But there wasn't something organized. And you guys tested this hypothesis, creating an email list. Yeah, you sent uh, like asked people around campus, hey, would you be interested in joining such a thing? And you got something like 500 uh, emails right away. And I thought. Okay, sounds like you're onto something. And furthermore, this really struck me as bizarre that here I am at one of the world's great institutions of biomedical advanced education, and it's right across the street from one of the this, this humming beehive of entrepreneurial activity and, and drug development. And you there's a disconnect. These these two sides are not really connecting the way I thought they naturally would. Um, what, what, what was the scene that you saw? Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. It was, it's, it really was cultural in the sense that, um, 
you know, I wouldn't say it was taboo, but it was certainly like just not talked about, uh, like what people were doing commercially with the kind of work that we were, uh, that we were doing in terms of our basic research. Um, and when you ask people, well, how'd you get your, you know, you ask alumni, well, how'd you discover what you wanted to do? A lot of them graduated and then asked their, their professor, well, you know, like, who, who do you know that, like, what should I do? And, you know, you're either going to do a postdoc or, you know, you might have some random connections to people uh, who were working in startups or pharma, or it might be alumni from the lab, but there was really no kind of concerted, uh, there was no central kind of community where people were all kind of trading these notes and resources and networks. And so, uh, yeah, w- once we started, it really kind of filled a void and then took on a life of its own. So what kinds of things did you try to create for uh, the members of this fledgling group? Yeah. So, I mean, I was a small part of it. I mean, this organization really uh, grew very quickly and there was, there was many things that people created, including uh, there was an internship class that, uh, you know, students could intern uh, for course credit with various companies. There was an angel group that, uh, the MIT alumni angel group that was started by some of the team um, to try and help people. Uh, like we, we knew we there were people that want to start companies or we knew friends that want to start companies. So like, why not try and bring uh alumni together to try and fund some of them. Um, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, there's a, there's a career fair that, that was launched, but yeah, what I worked on personally was, was I really, I, I, I envisioned like if someone arrives like day one and you know, you want to start companies or you want to be involved in kind of as an investor, or you, you know, you just want to learn this kind of process, like what do you need? And so I thought about it, like there's basically three things, right? So the first thing is you need to understand how people value what problems to work on. The second thing is how they come up with solution to those problems. And the third one is to go do it, right? And so the way I kind of thought about my own contribution to that community was, let's create the class where we can go poll venture capitalists about what are the big problems you're looking to fund? Like, you guys have the perspective on the industry. And I would go poll all these venture capitalists and it's, oh, cell and gene therapy manufacturing or, you know, non-viral methods for getting uh, Cas9 into cells or something, you know, like what, what people would pitch all these ideas and I'd come up with a book of these ideas and bring students together to work on solutions to these problems. And often, you know, it's kind of interesting to see how different, the, you know, the, those things were from what we thought was important academically. Um, the second class that we created was, okay, now that you've, now you've got some invention, well, how, how do you start a company? And so we had, we were really great to have support from uh, the Broad Institute and many of the, uh, you know, uh, business schools, the, the, many of the departments, and then also a lot of the local uh, kind of venture capital entrepreneurial uh, communities in, in Kendall Square to come together to like support uh, 10 teams a year towards how do you commercialize the research? And we would, we would bring to put together a team. They would kind of work through a curriculum and have like a pitch day at the end. And several companies, uh, you know, spun out of that effort. Um, and then the third thing was, like, okay, well, let's say you've got a great thing now. Like, where, where are you going to go do it? And I had a lot of friends um, who raised some angel money and they were out renting lab space, like, down the street at MIT. Um, uh, you know, they're renting lab space at, like, Lab Central or, um, you know, there are other kind of incubators that existed at the time. And uh, these are kind of designed for people that have raised a lot of money. So, you know, not maybe not 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 so much money, but, but far more than you could raise as a student, right? So it's like, well, if you could raise $25,000, uh, you don't want to spend it on a few months of lab space. So how do we solve this problem? And we thought, well, you know, MIT's got a lot of lab space. So why don't we just go ask? Like, can we uh, can we build, uh, you know, kind of an independent space? And um, and we were actually really generously supported by kind of all the different stakeholders at MIT, you know, including the, Depart- the Department of Biological Engineering, um, uh, you know, the Tech Transfer Office, you know, the Ke- Department of Chemical Engineering, 
um, you know, all, the, all these different groups to come together to actually build this independent space where people could work on their own ideas and um, kind of moonlight on, on their own, uh, you know, company ideas or independent research or, or so on. Now, now, was this the, the biomaker space? That's right. And I was about to say that was very generously supported by uh, Pearl Huang, who I think was another guest on The Long Run recently. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com Timmerman and get a copy of the ebook, Top 3 Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's AnswerThink.com Timmerman. In the Gibco Art of Cells project, we paired artists from around the world with a research scientist, then tasked them with creating a piece of cell artwork inspired with their scientists' unique perspectives. Meredith, Meredith Woolnuff is an embroidery artist from Newcastle, Australia. Her elegant and intricate artistic style takes inspiration from the organic structures of the natural world. Paired with Dr. Marietta Hartle, a postdoctoral researcher specializing in embryonic development, Meredith's amazing artwork takes inspiration from nature in a completely new way as she endeavors to capture the earliest stages of life in knitted threads. Discover Chapter 1 of the Art of Cells Project at thermofisher.com slash gibco love yourselves. Okay. So MIT Biotech Group gets up and going 2015, 16, 17. I know because I'm on your email list to this day. You organized <laughs> a lot of events. Uh, you, you helped uh, build uh, support for new classes in biotech entrepreneurship, basically. Uh, did create a lot of connectivity with the investment community and, uh, and industry where you know people could meet on, on mutually agreeable terms. Um, and it's, it seems to have gone really well. I mean, how many members, how do you measure success of that thing? Oh, I, I don't know today. It's certainly a large presence and it's been, it's been, you know, it was, we were kind of building the planes, we we're flying it. Now, man, there's been an incredible uh, string of people, leaders of the organization to come through and really professionalize the organization and grown it to new heights. And then also, you know, one of the most interesting things that I think happened in the past year with, uh, you know, the, and through the kind of the circumstances we're all living in, it was a lot of the walls between institutions broke down. And so you had MIT Biotech Group, Harvard Biotech Club, but then all similar kinds of people, similar minded people at all these other great research institutions come together and they form this organization called Nucleate, which is, which is now like, um, it, it's grown, you know, it's, it's grown to a nationwide kind of effort to, to bring access to entrepreneurship to everyone, like regardless of where they are. And I think that's, that's something we could have never predicted. Like, I mean, it's, it's been incredible to see the growth of that. Super cool. So I interrupted you. You said you were going to talk about biomaker space because this came for you. You, you. you kind of went to work. You went to work on this after getting your PhD. Is that right? 
Uh, that's right. So, uh, you know, I, uh, the, there was a, the team that we had. So, uh, Oliver Dodd, who's a, who's a student now in George Church's group, um, at Harvard, um, uh, as well as, and he was an undergrad at MIT at the time who he was working on his own startup and had no place to work on it. And so we, you know, he was actually our first kind of both one of the founders and like one of the first users of the space, as well as myself as another graduate student. And then, uh, Steve Wasserman and Maxine Jonas, who are instructors in, uh, the department of biological engineering. Um, who really helped, uh, you know, kind of build, build out the vision for this. And uh, when I was graduating, you know, I really wanted to, I was like, man, like, what could I do? Like, what better thing could I do than to like keep building this effort? And so I asked, you know, hey, could, could I join as an instructor and, and keep uh, keep building out this this lab at the time? You know, we're still planning the construction of it, still fundraising, still trying to figure out how it's going to integrate with the rest of campus. And so I, I spent a year kind of teaching classes as well as working on uh, driving those efforts forward with the rest of the team. So now how did that dovetail into what you're doing currently with Petri? Well, I think we had seen this incredible kind of cultural. So, so I, I think there's, there's basically three trends, which I, which I realized. Um, the first one was this cultural transformation, right? Like at MIT, one of the most entrepreneurial institutions in the world, still life sciences was not something where people were really thinking about starting companies. But by the time I left, that was, that had really taken off. Like everyone was thinking about, am I going to start, should I start the company? You know, what, what's the model? Like, should I, uh, sh- should I go after I finish grad school, be an entrepreneur? Should I partner with somebody, etc.? Um, and then I could now, see. Now, but Tony, it's, it was also, it was a two-sided thing though, right? It wasn't just that the students were not thinking about becoming entrepreneurs, but the, the venture capitalists and the industry was not really so open to the idea of, you know, the 28-year-old with the bright idea that we want to back with millions of dollars, right? There was, the, the, there was a different model for creating companies, which was, let's take big technology risk, let's, um, uh, but, but we need to get you know, like middle-aged people with some gray hair to run these things. Yeah, I think so. So I think really what maybe the, the larger point is that bio, biotech has not really had a founder culture, right? And I think you can trace this back to the origin of biotech. I mean, the first biotech company, Genentech, was founded by a venture capitalist, you know, Kleiner Perkins, Bob Swanson. Um, uh, from he, he did leave Kleiner Perkins and then and then founded the company and led it. So in, in that sense, he's also a founder. But I think his background comes from being a venture capitalist. And, um, and her Boyer, who was, you know, a professor and continued to be a professor throughout the lifetime of the company. And I think, you know, there's some, there's something about like the mythology or, or just like how people think about biotech where that started to be the model was, oh, you know, you have a professor who make, has some innovation within their lab, you know, often pioneered by their graduate students and postdocs, right? Um, and that's kind of partnered out with someone on the outside. And in many cases, even today, that's a venture capital firm that creates that company. Um, and I think if you look at, like, there's been this massive influx of capital into biotech, but most of it goes towards companies of this nature, right? Um, like, that, that are created in this way, um, either created by venture capital firms themselves or, like, kind of uh, a, a very prof- a professional kind of executive, maybe serial entrepreneur who's, who's done it three times uh, or, or comes out of big pharma, you know, was head of some division in, in pharma or something like that. Um, and uh, you can contrast this with tech, where we really kind of valorize the founder, right? Like everyone, there's this culture of founding companies. And if you think of every big, important tech company, we always think about their founders, whether it's like Steve Jobs and Woz or Bill Gates and Paul Allen, or even like today's companies like Stripe, like you have the Collison brothers, 
right? It's always about kind of the founders and people aspire to that. Like people aspire to, I'm going to found companies. And um, yeah, we, we kind of lack that in biotech. And I think we've started to see a cultural transformation where people are starting to think about themselves as founders. And um, we started to see the success of companies that are founder led um, often by like graduate students, like right out of graduate school, commercializing their own kind of discoveries or the vision that they developed as part of their PhD studies. So you've seen, seen several companies go public in the past year this way, but also like, you know, whole kind of set of companies that are just raising their series B's or series A's. And now this whole kind of seed ecosystem is formed around supporting uh, these, these, these uh, younger founders. Um, and so that's been kind of a larger transformation that we've seen. And, and part of the reason why we founded Petri to help drive that forward. I think that's pretty exciting development, but um, just so the listener understands the scene here, it's 2018, 2019, you're just fresh out of MIT with your PhD, you've canvassed the, the, the place, and you, you know that there's a lot of entrepreneurial talent and ideas percolating all over the place, and it's basically undertapped uh, by the, the, you know, the top tier venture firms uh, that, that people know. Um, and so you come up with a different model for what you call founder-led biotech. Can you describe this Petri model, how this is supposed to work? Just to place it in the context, when you asked about like, where was I in 20, yeah, I had seen. So in my even circle of people that I knew just at MIT, right, we had Ginkgo Bioworks, which just went public. We had Asimov, uh, we had Strand Therapeutics, we had Biobot Analytics. Um, we, you know, we had, a, we had Squeeze Biotech. We had um, Finch Therapeutics. I mean, all these companies are pioneers in their fields, have gone public or raised hundreds of millions of venture capital. I mean, like, so that was, I was in this environment where I was surrounded by these people who were talking, where I was talking to them about all the struggles that they were having and kind of getting started and realizing, like, this is something that we need. We need a new model to support more of this. And not just at MIT, which is in the hub and, um, you know, people, it's kind of started now, to now, what, there. What were their struggles? Was it like getting the proverbial first million dollars? Because, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, an anonymous graduate student. I'm 26 years old or something and nobody wants to back me. Is, is that it? Yeah. So I think, you know, there's funding, right? It's, what are the two things that companies need to grow are really funding and people, right? You need, you need the funding in order to pay the people. We need the people in order to deploy the, the funding, right? And then there's other kind of ancillary things. Like you need lab space. Um, you need, uh, you know, you need to know how to do things. Like if you're a graduate student, you never thought about building a business before. You don't know the first thing about like, how do I even, how do I even incorporate a company? How do I, uh, you know, ha- like, how do I hire, uh, you know, uh, a website designer? How do I like, how do I fire my first employee? If that, if I have to do that, like, what do I do? Right? Like they don't, there's a lot of things that you're doing for the first time. And we, so, so I think there's basically three things that we've done. We've tried to do, right. Is we've tried to create access to funding for people. We've tried to create access to mentorship. Um, so, so okay, so let me, how have we done this? So the first thing is funding, mentorship, and community, right? So the first thing is funding, like we're investors, and our mandate is to partner with scientists who are going to found those companies. And we've done that 13 times since we started this uh, in February of last year. But now where did the money come from and how much money? Petrie was co-created with a venture firm called Pillar. And Pillar has invested in, you know, across the board, everything from biotech. So they were the first investors in Asimov, uh, Path AI, they were early investors, um, investors in PillPack. But there are also investors in, you know, software companies as well as kind of 
research-based university spinouts, like some people might call them frontier tech or deep tech, like Zapata Computing, for example, or or even uh, in crypto, like um, Algorand. And so um, they really could see the kind of broad, they were bridging the gap, right, between uh, between like tech and the culture of tech and, and all the things that have been built in tech, which I can, which I can describe further. Um, but also like they had a point of view of, well, like, how, how, why isn't this being built in biotech? Like, what, what can we do differently? And so when I met Jamie Goldstein, who's the founding partner of the firm there, and I kind of pitched him, well, we should create, we should create something like this um, to, to do in, in biotech. And um, that's kind of where Petri was born. And it's inspired by like a, a Petri dish, right? I mean, that, that this is like where something begins. That's right. Where something begins. It's a substrate. You can kind of, I always imagined like, you know, I grew up, I, I, my intellectually grew up doing microbiology where you take these petri dishes, you would swab things in the environment, streak them on the plate and see what grows. And I wanted to do that for biotech. So what, how can we create that kind of substrate where we can throw smart, talented people at it and kind of see what flourishes from that? And so the model for Petri was let's partner with first time founders, often scientists right out of academia who are realizing the potential of their work you know, earlier than, than anyone else has recognized, or they have this kind of cornered resource. Let's partner with them. Let's fund them in order to build out the company. So often this is pre-incorporation, right? They haven't even incorporated company yet. We'll help them set up the company. We'll help them recruit and we'll help them fundraise. And that's like basically the two things that we try and help people do. Of course, there's a lot of strategy work that we do, but a lot of that is through recruiting advisors to the team. So to give you a kind of case study, one of the companies, um, is called Matterworks, and their goal is to be like the Illumina of metabolomics. So when that company was founded, it was just uh, uh, a scientist who had this vision for creating this company, and kind of a, uh, a prototype napkin sketch of the of the technology that was going to unlock metabolomics um, for 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 you know the average life scientist. So when we funded the company, you know we went to work. He went to work on trying to prototype out those ideas in the lab. Like we helped rent lab space and, and prototype. We also recruited. You know, we recruited pretty much every member of the team with him. So we introduced the CTO, you know, the chief of staff, technical talent. Uh, we recruited uh, several advisors and angel investors to the company, one who was Emily LaPruce, who had built Twist. Um, and we introduced uh, some of the first partners and customers, um, trying to understand, like, okay, how can we test these ideas against several different verticals and drug discovery or synthetic biology? Um, and, and, and then we helped uh, raise, raise the seed fundraising um, with, with the team. Now the actual amount amount of money that you have here, it's it's not really that large, as I recall. Twenty nineteen, you got started. This was something a couple million, and your your thought was that you were going to divvy this up into ten or twelve projects, uh, where I mean, basically you're giving people a chance to, with a what you might call a proto company to find out if they've got something that can uh, you know go on to raise subsequent rounds. And, and further de-risk. Uh, so like a couple hundred thousand dollars to get the, to, to you know, keep the, the founder able to, you know, so he can pay his rent, his or her rent, uh, and recruit a couple people and run the killer experiment to find out if this is a real thing. Yeah, that's right. When we were starting out, we were investing, we, we had roughly that amount of money. We we're investing $250,000 checks and in the first phase of this like formation stage of the company, which was really just paying, like you said, someone's salary, like, I want to quit my job or I just graduated grad school and I've got no support. Like, how do I, you know, how do I get started? Um, and, uh, that's, that's evolved a, a bit. I mean, we've seen now we just raised uh, pillar fund three, which is $190 million actually across two funds. 
Um, and, and by working with Pillar, like we're writing checks now up to $6 million, um, into seed rounds of these companies. And that's just because we've seen like really a lot of these things mature very quickly. Um, and we were falling in on these companies and trying to be flexible to the needs of these companies at like, no matter where they're starting out. So the smallest check we ever written was I think $60,000. And now we have, uh, you know, the ability to go, uh, a hundred X, uh, more, more than that when, when we need to. You know, hearing you talk just a little bit ago about like the things that you offer, I can imagine some listeners listening to this and saying, boy, Tony, you sound kind of like a venture capitalist, like one of these venture creation kind of enterprises. But um, you're trying to do things differently. Uh, I, I've read on your blog some about the, the misaligned incentives uh, between venture investors and entrepreneurs and how you're trying to um, address that and come up with a model here that is more friendly to the founder. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what, how you're structuring this uh, in a different way for what you're calling the, the founder-led biotech movement? So there's, there's, there's the overall kind of point, and then there's the micro-mechanics of how this is achieved. So let me just start out with the overall point, which is, um, you know, <laughs> the, the biotech community again, like culturally has not really placed a lot of value on founders. And often when you look at the cap tables of these companies, um, the founders own up, own, end up owning like a very small fraction of the company. Um, and that's in contrast to the tech company where it's actually to tech companies where it's almost always flipped, right? You almost have the, the, this, the opposite dynamic between the ownership of the founders and the ownership of the investors. And, uh, if you ask venture capitalists, you know, in tech, like, what, why is it this way? They'll often say, well, like, you know, to build these companies, someone needs a tremendous incentive in order to be, a, to even found them at all. And then to keep going through, through the whole kind of trajectory of the company. And, um, and I think that's like the same culture, which we need to support in biotech. Like we need more founders. We need more founders in biotech. And I, I, you know, I, I, I would digress. I, I, I would love to explain why. Let me, let me finish answering your question, but let me, let me, um, I'll, I'll explain in a, in a bit, like why I think we need more founders in biotech and why this is really important. But if the point is that we need to incentivize more people to founders, that might mean we need to need to flip the cap table dynamics so that the founders are retaining, you know, more ownership in their companies. Now that, now you also bring up the point about alignment, right? And so there's not just ownership, but there's also like, are the VCs and the founders aligned and even what the goals of the company should be. And, um, one of the things that Pillar has done, which I think is really kind of unique and transformational, is we offer to buy counter common stock in the companies. So the founders own, and this is going to get into some of the micromechanics of venture capital. I'm not sure if the listeners of this podcast, how familiar they are, but like often the venture capitalists are, are buying something called downside protection, right? They're essentially, uh, you might think about it like in the whole history of venture capital, there's a lot of different ways that people have lost money. And now when, uh, when venture capitalists are making investment, they try and put in certain protections that stop all the different ways that you might lose money. <laughs> you know, so, um, so you hope like, for example, when you buy uh, something called preferred stock, that when you make your investment, you get at least your investment back out, even if the company is sold for, you know, less, uh, uh, you know, kind of undesirable amount of, of, of capital, uh, that you can return to the fund. Um, so in common stock that, that, you know, that you actually just, um, we could get wiped out by that event. Um, so the founders could get wiped out. Um, and, uh, you know, we think that that creates a conflict of interest or, you know, a lack, uh, a lack of alignment between founders and investors that can lead to conflict and stop people from focusing on how do we just create the most value 
and instead, uh, you know, creates these boardroom conflicts. Um, and, and we try and, you know, prevent that. You guys buy common shares. You do, as, a, as an investor, you are on the same playing field as the founders. You all have common shares. So if you have a successful exit, everybody profits. If you don't, I mean, you've, you've lost your time and money. That's right. And I'll say not, not every deal we've done has been that way, but we always offer it as an option to founders. The things you're talking about here, Tony, with preferred shares versus common shares and liquidation preferences. And I mean, you can really get into the weeds on the legal stuff. And I knew none of this. I covered startups for years without really knowing this stuff. And, you know, you hear, you know, companies, management teams offering the proverbial carrots of stock options to employees. And I just... I, I, it behooves so many people before they enter one of these startups to do a little research and homework about that capitalization table. Uh, like, you know, liquidation preferences for one. I remember like in, in the dark days of like the recession, you'd have companies that would have two or three X uh, liquidation preferences for preferred shares before common. So, I mean, you understand how this works, but like if 150 million of, of capital goes into this thing and you get acquired by, you know, some big pharma for 300 million or 450 million, well, then all of the proceeds go to the preferred shareholders and then nothing is left for the, con- for the common. So under that hypothetical example, the founders, the early employees with common shares would, you know, have put all their blood, sweat and tears into this thing and got nothing. And the venture capitalists got, you know, a modest two to three X return. They go about their business to, to bet on the next thing. I mean, it actually does happen, can happen. Um, and people should be aware of it before they, <laughs> they enter into these kind of deals, negotiate appropriately. But this is another thing with biotech, you know, a lot of this, like you said, like there's been so much media and coverage of like the startup ecosystem in, in tech. And that's one of the things why I love what you're doing, Luke, is like, you know, I think there's well, there hasn't been this in biotech. Like most people in biotech don't understand how to start companies. And I think that that's what we need to work together to try and make this as transparent and accessible to people so that we can, you know, level the playing field. We can democratize access to people. And this is also happening. You're trying to create a new model for startups. Uh, at a time when the technologies that we have are just mind blowing. I mean, the things that, you know, are, are standard tools of the trade in, you know, your average sophisticated lab, um, you can do a lot with and, and whole new fields are being opened up. So like as an investor now, I mean, where do you see a lot of the opportunity over the next five, 10, 20 years? Yeah, I think we really are at the kind of inflection of an exponential um, with technology. So uh, the way I like to think about it is like the ability to read, write every layer of the biological system. So if you think about at the bottom layer, you have like DNA and then you have RNA and then you have protein this is all organized into cells. Then you have cells that are organized into organs and you have organ systems, organisms, and then whole ecosystems. We really have only seen in the past few years, the ability to read, write almost every layer of this system, right? So you have uh, at the level of the DNA, right? Of course, we have the advancements in CRISPR, but like there's base editing along with that. There's prime editing. There's even just increasing ability to do longer and longer synthesis, right? Like we've seen, the, I think, the yeast genome, right? <laughs> like um, we've seen uh, at the RNA level, right? The ability to base edit, the ability to target RNA with small molecules. We have the, of, of course, all the sequencing technology with DNA and RNA. For protein, right? We're having similar. There was some of the first breakthroughs in protein sequencing, in the past few years, and I expect to see that 
continue. Um, we've seen just in, huge advancements in mass spectrometry, but also like, you know, people leveraging the, the ability to like write proteins or seeing protein synthesis, but even like just manipulate proteins, like blocking protein-protein interactions or inducing uh, interactions with molecular glues um, or degraders. You know, we're seeing at the level of, of uh, cells, right? Like uh, the single cell RNA-seq is the ability to read cell states. We also are gaining the engineering, the ability to engineer gene circuits such that we can govern the cells, the state of the cell. And that's in, that's allowing us to engineer uh, uh, new kind of cell therapies and, and second generation, next generation cell therapies. Um, we have at the layer of, of like organs, like, you know, you have xenotransplantation, you have bioprinting, um, you have uh, the spatial genomics, like ability to read um, uh, uh, the kind of cells in place where they are and understand how organs work. Then even at the la- layer of, uh, of, of like whole ecosystems, you have like gene drives, for example, or metagenomics. And so um, I think like it's, we're seeing just the ability to read, write every single layer. And then this kind of feeds back on itself. And we discover more technology through applying these technologies to new systems. Um, if you if you know, like almost all of these technologies are in themselves biological systems, biological technologies, right? Like viruses, CRISPR, restriction enzymes, and so on. So I think we're 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 like we're seeing this feedback loop that just increases the rate at which we develop even more and more technology. And uh, it really feels like right at this moment we're at this incredible point in history. So you're kind of seeing where I'm going with this with, I mean, the availability of the tools uh, along with, let's call it an on-ramp for more young people to become entrepreneurs, to really take these, uh, take the keys to the car and like really take it out and run with it uh, as best they can. I mean, that's a piece that's still developing. It's cultural aspect to it. Um, This is all happening during a pandemic as well. How has that either helped or hindered what you're trying to do? I think it definitely hindered at the beginning, like it hindered everybody. Just the uncertainty is probably the biggest hindrance. Like you don't know what's coming. We don't know how to operate, whether we should change operations or just kind of stall and wait it out. Um, But, you know, now we've seen, uh, I think, actually a lot of silver linings, like the ability to bring access to like... There, you know, there are the hubs. There were the hubs of Boston, San Francisco, that are now kind of diffused across the entire world. Um, really, anyone in the world can participate in these ecosystems, and we've seen that, uh, you know, in our portfolio. We've also seen that in a lot of other investors' portfolios. We've seen that in the kind of university organizations, like I mentioned, like Nucleate. Um, we've seen the ability to hire talent from anywhere. You know, not just found companies from anywhere, but hire talent from anywhere engage advisors, um, you know, in, in mentors and community across in this, this, uh, summit, which we're hosting coming up is all virtual and we're engaging people, you know, across the globe for that. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not sure it's unique to biotech, but I think like we've all kind of realized a lot of silver linings that, you know, and that's none of that to diminish the, you know, a lot of the pain and, and difficulties and suffering that, that, uh, you know, many people have, have lost family members and I, I don't want to diminish any of that. Um, you know, I, I just want to say like, yeah, there, 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 there are kind of positives that are coming out of this, um, that are going to change the ecosystem and how it operates. Well, there's a, there are efficiency gains, um, to doing your work this way. I think a lot of people have discovered that and are adjusting into their, you know, new workflow. Um, last thing I want to ask you, Tony, uh, is about how you hire people, how you evaluate the people who are going to come be a part of your Petri network. Um, I saw you wrote, I think you wrote on a Substack, like really interesting article where you draw some inspiration from 
Tyler Cowen. Can you tell the listeners like how your thinking has evolved on evaluating people to become entrepreneurs? It's, it's a really interesting question and continues to evolve for me. So, I mean, about Tyler Cowen, I, uh, you know, Tyler Cowen is an economist, um, and he writes a blog called Marginal Revolution. He has another great podcast called Conversations with Tyler. And um, I just kind of, I was aware of his work just from being on the internet. But, uh, you know, I, I wasn't paying close attention until I started to meet a number of people in biotech that had been funded by Tyler Cowen. In fact, there are some companies that raised the seed financing. And, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, like that's that seems like a really cool company. Who was the first person to identify that entrepreneur? And I realized it was Tyler Cowen. I was like, how is it possible that this guy who's an economist is like outperforming, you know, not, and, and he had identified researchers, he had identified entrepreneurs, right? He's, he's out, he's beating out like Forbes 30 under 30 or like Harvard MIT's like admissions committees or venture capitalists in terms of his ability to identify talent earlier than anyone else. And, um, and I just thought, well, how's he doing this? I became obsessed with it. I started to talk to everyone that uh, had one, so he had, um, he has a grant program called Emergent Ventures, which is not a venture capital firm, uh, it's just a grant program. And I started to talk to a lot of the people I knew who had won these grants about how did they find out about it and what was the process, and just tried to read everything that Tyler had ever said or written about this topic. And uh, I basically boiled it down to four factors, but I'll, I'll say it's still kind of a mystery to me, and I think there's no kind of simple rule. But, the, you know, the first thing is about distribution. Like, I think it's about um, making, you know, the awareness of opportunities to the right groups of people. And, um, and the second thing there is about designing the right game. So, you know, like, this is the interesting thing about Emergent Ventures is it's very small amounts of money, and it's not widely publicized. So the people that are applying are, like, very earnest people, Right. Um, they're not looking for fame. They're not like, they're not putting emergent ventures on their LinkedIn or like, they're not championing the, the, the fact that they won this, like you would see from some of the other industry awards. Um, the third thing is about like Tyler's own nose for talent. Um, and the, the fourth thing is, uh, is really about like his ability to encourage people to be more ambitious with their ideas. And so when I look at this about like, how does the, how does like venture capital operate or like what inspirations do I take away from this? I mean, one is really about like the pools of people, right? Like is trying to figure out like where, what are the networks of people that, that are undertapped today? And I think uh, the thing which we've tried to do for Petri has been, it's these like scientist entrepreneurs, like these people that are not really partaking in like the entrepreneurial ecosystem because they're like heads down focused in the lab. And then all of a sudden they come up, they're ready to do something and they don't know how to do it. Um, so like trying to figure out like the networks of people, like wh how, how, where are those people? Um, the second thing is like designing the right game for them. Right. So not like trying to design the game, which is about like raise as much money as fast as possible, but really like trying to figure out what are the earnest needs of this group and how do we serve the needs of, uh, like how, how are we providing like the right value to them that isn't just like showering them with cash then, you know, um, the third thing is, is really about, um, is about how we how we identify them, and a lot of that comes down to the network of people that we've built, you know, um, and trying to not centralize how we're identifying talent, but really relying on our community. Um, and the, then the last one is like, I, and I think this is probably the most important one to do well is how do you encourage someone who's worked on trying to produce one paper or two papers or something to think about how you build, you know, one of the most important companies in the world. And I think a lot of that comes through exposure of people that have done it. And so that's another thing that we've tried to do is make one-on-one -on -one kind of relationships between our entrepreneurs and founders that have 
built, you know, public company companies that they've taken public and they can see themselves in that. And it's, it, this is something that's achievable. <laughs> well, you do have a great network of advisors, people, some of you mentioned like Emily LaProust, um, you know, I know George Church, Stan Lapidus, uh, Daphne Kohler are among your advisors, all fantastic uh, domain experts in their areas. But, you know, the one thing I didn't hear you mention were credentials or grades or, you know, who your referral was. So this isn't just, you know, uh, Tony and a bunch of friends from MIT, uh, you know, so graduate student with a great idea from UMass Worcester or somewhere else could very well uh, come in and join this, this network. It's more about the quality of the idea, what problem you're trying to solve, um, how you're going about it, uh, then kind of all these kind of status markers that a lot of people use as shorthand for, for quality. Um, you, you sp- I mean, Tyler, uh, in, his, in his writings, mentions like how important it is for him to really review the proposal. What's the idea? What's this person really trying to do? Is that how you think about it? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, um, I think we place a lot of, we, we try and place a, a lot of uh, effort on just assessing like, is this a great technology, a great idea? Uh, more than where's the kind of network that that person came from. Um, and we just launched this uh, pitch competition, actually, uh, as part of the Federal Biotech Summit, where we were giving away over $200,000 worth of prizes to anyone in the world that uh, applied with, with these ideas. And that yielded uh, a lot of really interesting things that are outside of, uh, you know, the, the typical networks that we're typically, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, connected to. You know, that that word you used, earnestness, as well, about the person and the proposal. This is the last point I want to make. Um, I know, I, I got a call, you, you don't probably even know this, but I got a call a few, couple months ago from a woman, Jingyi Lu, um, Pennsylvania, uh, doctor getting her MBA, and she wanted to write a little something about uh, Asian American leaders in biotech that inspired her. And it was a time for Asian American um, Awareness Month. And, uh, you know, I get a lot of pitches, right? People that want coverage, they want uh, recognition or notice for what they're doing. Uh, They often come through professional intermediaries and they have lots of great credentials. But this woman was clearly like sincere. Uh, And I called her right away (laughs) and and we talked about it. And I probably wouldn't have done anything with it um, if I hadn't like, recognized right on the spot that this was a legitimate line of inquiry. It was inspiring her. It was helping her map out a career path. This was worth doing. So I said, you know what, you know, you want to write something, you know, send me something by five o'clock tomorrow. I'll edit it. And and if it's good, I'll publish it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not like a Pulitzer prize winning piece or anything like that. Right. But it, it's meaningful. And further, it actually opened the door for Jing Yi and her friend Eric Dai, um, who I think you know, like they're part of your, your, your Petri community now. Um, and they have since written a second article on Timmerman Report about next generation mRNA therapies and how we go from here to there after the success with Moderna and BioNTech. So now, I mean, now like some synergies are happening, like they've clearly got something to offer. Um, I, I can help shepherd that. Uh, along in a way, a different way, but similar in some respects to what you're doing. You're creating a place where young people can, you know, thrive. They can they can bring their talents to the table and see where they go. 
I, I think that's exactly right. And uh, I think Jingyi and, and Eric uh, have also launched their own podcast. So people should go check that one out as well. And they're, they're a great, great team. Excellent. Well, hey, Tony, well, you said you have an event coming up. Can you tell the listeners uh, what that's about, when, how they can tune in? Uh, that's right. It's a free virtual event. It's a week of live events and recorded events uh, that are featuring kind of fireside chats, panels, workshops with people that have built founder-led companies. So we'll have a, a really great group of people. And if um, if this is something that people want to learn more about or understand the pathway that might be in front of them for how to build a company, then this is the place to do it. And um, I encourage people, you can go to founderledbio.com and learn more. It's Again, it's free. Um, and uh, we'd love to meet you at, at the summit. So that's going to be uh, the week of November 1st. That's great. Well, uh, Tony, I think I'll have to listen to this conversation five or 10 years from now and see where it all went because you're, you're early in your long run. But um, th- this is an exciting time. Uh, thank you for joining me today on the long run. Thank, thank you, Luke. And, and also th- thanks so much for your support of, of all these efforts. I mean, uh, you, were, you were the first, uh, like I said, the first, first guest of MIT Biotech Group and also gave Petri some very early and important coverage and, and can just continue to be a supporter of, of all of our efforts. So, you know, I, I, I really appreciate what you've been able to do to, uh, you know, push this movement forward. All right. Best of luck. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.